Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The United Kingdom plays host to a major conference this week intended to raise money and political support for the Syrian humanitarian disaster. There are now over 4.6 million Syrian refugees who have fled abroad, mostly to surrounding countries, and 7.6 million people displaced inside the country. In all, the UN estimates that by the end of 2016, there will be 18 million people in need of some sort of humanitarian relief, things like food aid, shelter, and medicines. And that is going to cost a great deal of money, about $9 billion to be exact. And the way that money is raised is through appeals to donors, basically like a charity whose major contributors are governments around the world. On the line today to discuss the London conference and the major global challenges of mounting an appropriate humanitarian response to this overwhelming crisis is the United Kingdom's Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Peter Wilson. We discuss some specific aspects of the humanitarian response to this now five-year-old crisis, like, for example, providing access to education for displaced children and opportunities for employment for refugees abroad. We also discuss the larger challenge of mounting a humanitarian response when so many of the belligerents are ignoring the basic tenets of the laws of war, and we do touch on the current political peace process underway in Geneva. As always, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me or peruse our archive of in-depth discussions about topical and timeless foreign policy issues. And now here is my conversation with the UK's Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Peter Wilson. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'm curious to learn why the UK is hosting this. I mean, the previous funding conferences for the Syrian humanitarian crisis have been hosted by Kuwait. Uh, Why the UK this year? Well, I think Kuwait had made an enormous contribution um, to um, raising money um, for Syria and for the neighboring region. And I think there was just generally a feeling that it was somebody else's turn. Uh, This is something that really matters to us. Uh, We've been huge contributors uh, to the humanitarian effort. It's the biggest contribution my country has ever made to any humanitarian crisis anywhere in the world ever. Um, And so we felt that it was right that we should take that on. But we are co-hosting with Kuwait. Um, but also with Norway, Germany, and importantly, with the United Nations itself. So what do you hope to accomplish uh, in this conference? I know the uh, OCHA, the the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, they've put the uh, projected bill for the Syrian humanitarian response in 2016 at just under $8 billion. Uh, What do you, I mean, do you expect to raise that amount of money on on Thursday or or what, what are you expecting? 
Well, I think we're very ambitious about the amount of money that we aim to raise for the Ocher appeal. That is really, really important. So money is definitely up there. It's incredibly important that we raise as much as we possibly can, but that we raise as much as we can, not just for the coming year and for the coming Ocher appeal, but that we also look at this multi-annually. We want to be able to say not just what we can raise now, but what we can raise in the next three to four years, because this will not be a problem that is solved immediately. There will be ongoing humanitarian needs. We want to give people a sense of confidence and a sense of certainty for the medium term as well as the short term. So that's that's one element of it. But Mark, there are other things that are also really important about this conference. So we are seeking to make sure, first of all, that we've got a plan for jobs, how we can create livelihoods for people, um, both um, in um, the camps around Syria and in the neighboring countries, but also ultimately in Syria itself. Um, Secondly, education. It's really important that we help uh, the children of refugees get into school. And we've got very ambitious objectives for that. Um, And thirdly, we want to make sure that this conference puts to an end the kind of violations of international humanitarian law that are now happening and brings the international community around very, very clearly on on the issue of protection. So those are three things that are very important for us. And ultimately, this is about the long term and not just the short term. It's about creating an environment where ultimately people can go back to Syria and help to rebuild their country. Uh, So I'd love to disaggregate some of of those points you made between the, the, the money goal, the jobs goal, the education goal, and the humanitarian violations goal. Uh, First on on, on the money, is there a specific dollar amount that you're seeking to raise from this conference? Well, you mentioned mentioned the OCHA appeal. Um, We're talking in terms of really trying to double the contributions that people have made so far. So what we're looking to do is double what people have been able to achieve so far. Now, there are lots of different ways that you can measure that. Uh, We've had some very, very generous responses, initial responses to our appeal, but I don't want to anticipate the result of the conference itself by giving you a figure now. We'll only be able to announce that when everybody comes together and all the money is on the table. Um, but we have had lots of very generous responses and we're continuing to work this right up to the last minute. And on the on the jobs question, is part of the issue that refugees uh, who are in host countries, either in the region or in Europe, are sometimes like denied the ability to work, like denied proper permits uh, to go out and seek jobs? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so for the host countries, I think it's very understandable when they are being incredibly generous about uh, what they are doing for refugees, that they also ask something in return from the international community, which is help with their infrastructure, um, uh, help with coping with the burden of refugees um, in, in particular, Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey. Um, so it's very reasonable that they should be asking for our help in that. I think it's also reasonable, though, to expect that uh, refugees in those countries have an opportunity to do productive work where that is possible. Um, and there is a lot of entrepreneurialism in some of the camps which seeking to expand that and create real opportunities for people, ultimately, so that they can go back home and help rebuild their own country. I suppose isn't um, part of the, the political problem, though, 
that you know you're you're talking about creating infrastructure for refugees in these host countries in Turkey and Jordan in Lebanon uh yet there seems to be this um sort of desire among the local population not to want to make their refugee population permanent right so so on the one hand you're offering the ability to build jobs presumably to to help you know build camps and build buildings to and schools to to house these refugees but on the other hand i would imagine that there's probably some political pressure um to not want to create any infrastructure that would make it seem as if this refugee population is permanent sure i mean i think those are understandable concerns but actually i don't see those as mutually contradictory objectives i think if um people in refugee camps are able to be productive they not only help themselves but they also help their host communities and ultimately put themselves in a better position to return to syria what we're talking about long term is helping to rebuild syria itself we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where ultimately we do have a political deal but where some of the most talented people from Syria are not able or not willing to go back to their country so this is ultimately about building the long term and building Syria itself uh, so can you talk a little bit more about the, the plan for educating refugee children i know this is something that your former prime minister gordon brown who in his role as I think he's like the UN special envoy for global education. I know he's championed this cause. And I also know that UNICEF has warned repeatedly about a lost generation of Syrian children who have not had the ability to go to school. So what does this conference hope to accomplish to that end? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right to point out the leadership role that UNICEF has played on this and the very important role that Gordon Brown has played um, in raising awareness of this issue globally. Uh, we are worried that there are um, a group of children who are not having access to education and who need it. Um, and again, this is ultimately about um, preparing the rebuilding of Syria. Um, UNICEF have some very ambitious plans um, that would enable, uh, with the right uh, international support, would enable us to be able to say, that by the end of 2016 or by the end of the 2016-17 school years we will be able to get all refugee children into some form of education that is a very ambitious aim but it's one that we think is achievable with the right amount of international support do they have a price tag on that name uh-huh there there, there there is a price tag on it which is you know well over a billion dollars but it's exactly that kind of thing that we're trying to do right now we're trying to finalize that and trying to put in place precisely the kind of support that is needed to make that into a reality and the idea is this conference would hopefully galvanize support towards that end yeah, I mean, we've had some very, very positive signs on that. And and and, and Norway is co-leading this educational prong with UNICEF. Um, there have been a lot of uh, very, very generous initial moves made by donors. So I am hopeful that we're going to make real progress on this during the conference itself. Uh, so finally, you mentioned the ongoing humanitarian violations uh, that are, frankly, in, in many cases, preventing uh, aid from reaching besieged populations. Uh, the Security Council has, as you know, uh, I don't need to tell you, but I'm informing the listeners, uh, over the past couple of years, I think like since 2014, passed a few resolutions demanding uh, humanitarian access to populations in need. But those resolutions in many times have, you know, seem to not have had their intended effect. So like, what else can the Security Council do to ensure greater humanitarian access? 
Well, what we will have is we'll have a group of 70 countries um, at the conference itself, Mark, and all of those countries we expect to commit very clearly to um, support the kind of humanitarian access that, frankly, the government should already be granting people. That's not a gift um, to um, the international community or the people of Syria. It's an obligation placed on the government and all parties in Syria under international humanitarian law. So we will use the conference, first of all, to underline that fact. And it's a very, very clear fact. And as you say, the UN and the Security Council could not have been clearer about this. But we will also be asking individual countries at the conference to take action with the parties to whom they are closest to make sure that this is not just a piece of paper passed by the Security Council, but this is observed by the parties on the ground. So that is going to be a very, very big focus of the conversation we're having. But the reason we're having this conversation, as you say, is because people are not abiding by the resolutions which have already been passed, and they are not abiding by international humanitarian law. That has got to stop. Um, access has got to be granted, and it needs to be granted not now, not as a favour uh, to create a better environment for political negotiations. Although undoubtedly, um, if that access was granted, um, then the atmosphere in those negotiations would improve. So I, I presume you were, to a certain extent, referring to Russia. Is, is Russia going to be at the conference? Well, we've invited Russia. We've invited Russia at the top level. So we would expect Russia to be there. Um, but as my foreign secretary has also made very clear, um, we expect Russia to start to work with the rest of the international community to bring about a political solution. Uh, but if Russia continues to choose to side um, with the regime um, and attack opposition areas, precisely the kind of opposition that we actually want to be negotiating a political solution, then that is going to make a solution harder to achieve, not easier. But it's exactly those kinds of frank conversations that will be happening in the conference on the 4th of February. So it'll be an opportunity to uh, have some sort of bilateral conversations with, with partners as well on issues not necessarily strictly related to humanitarian issues. I know, for example, you know, John Kerry will be there. I assume he'll use the opportunity to, um, you know, talk about more than just the humanitarian side of things. That's right. I mean, the politics of this are very important, and um, we are expecting all of the main political actors to be at the conference. Um, Stefan de Mistura from the United Nations will be there. The Secretary General himself will be there. Um, uh, a lot of the key countries um, at, uh, in this um, process will be there. Um, so we are expecting to have political conversations as well as conversations about fundraising in the longer term. This is a very political process, um, and we want to use every opportunity we can, both to help the negotiations currently happening in Geneva, um, but also to bring about an end uh, to this horrific, horrific um, situation, uh, which is causing so much suffering to the people of Syria. So uh, on those negotiations that are ongoing in Geneva, they seem to have gotten off to a, a pretty rough start. And I, I'm sort of like a, of, of two minds here. On, on the one hand, this is arguably the biggest step towards a negotiated political solution in the last like two or three years uh, for the Syria crisis. Yet on the other hand, there doesn't seem to be much negotiating happening just yet. I mean, as you referenced um, Russian bombardments of rebel positions earlier, I mean, I, I believe just the other day, uh, a coalition of Syrian rebels pulled out of the talks, at least temporarily, out of protest for the fact that they're being bombed by Russia as these talks are going on. So uh, what what opportunities are there for progress on the political front, do you see? And how can the UK uh, 
help push or nudge the needle in the right direction? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is um, the both the government and the opposition are present in Geneva, and that has to be a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, I think the second thing, as you say, is that nobody is in any doubt about how difficult this process is. Um, there is no quick fix to this. Um, this is going to require painstaking, patient, serious negotiation about the big issue, which is how to bring about a transition in Syria. That's what these negotiations are about. And thirdly, we will continue to call a spade a spade. Uh, when parties are acting in a way that is actually making a negotiated solution harder, not easier, we will continue to say so. And so I think it is absolutely right to call Russia on their behavior and to make it very clear that what they are doing at the moment in Syria is not helping to bring about a solution. It is doing the reverse. Now, clearly, we are using every mechanism that we can to bring about the kind of political solution that everybody says that they want. Um, that's what we're trying to do. And we believe that the London Conference will be an important step in that process because we are holding out a vision of the future which is more hopeful and provides more certainty. So we're trying to deal with both the near term and the further term in a way that gets Syria back to peace and gets the international community into a space where it can help the people of Syria rebuild that country. Uh, do, do you expect any European countries to make any announcements regarding refugee policy in, in their country? I, I know the, re the, the refugee situation isn't necessarily the specific uh, focus. I should say the refugee situation in Europe is not the specific focus of this conference. Um, but do you expect any major announcements among European partners? Uh, and also, what um, relationship do you see this conference having to a, a meeting that President Obama is hosting in September on the global refugee crisis? Well, Mark, I think this conference is focused very much on helping Syria itself um, and helping the current countries around Syria who've helped to deal with the bulk of this um, refugee problem. That's the focus of the conference. Um, I think that if some countries use this as a platform to make wider announcements, then obviously they're free to do so. But for us, the focus of this is very much on um, helping Syrians, uh, supporting Syrians, um, rebuilding Syria, and helping the countries around Syria who've been so generous and who really need the support of the international community. That's our focus now. Um, finally, uh, just sort of taking a, a step back, I mean, this model of hosting a pledging conference for a major disaster, sometimes it's a, a natural disaster, sometimes it's a man-made disaster like in Syria, is something that the UN and, and its member states have been doing for quite some time. Um, but inevitably, it seems uh, that the amount uh, raised is less than the amount required to fully mount a humanitarian response. Uh, and I wonder if there is a better way of doing this other than treating humanitarian relief like a, a charity to which governments donate uh, if and when they can at these kinds of pledging conferences. Is there a, a, another sort of model that might work that might be more fitting for the, the kind of global humanitarian crisis we're facing? 
Well, I think there's a there's a wider conversation about um, 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 about the world humanitarian system, which will happen um, in May at the World Humanitarian Summit. Um, I mean, certainly there is a very strong link between humanitarian aid and development. And that's one of the big things that the World Humanitarian Summit will need to look at. I mean, for my own country, um, we give 0.7 percent of our GDP in aid and we are encouraging others to follow that example. Um, there are some countries like Norway, which have already done so very, very generously and are above 1%. But there are very, very few countries who are able to say that they commit this much of their national income to this. And we are the only G20 country that can do so. Um, so there is a wider debate. You earn those bragging rights, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you very much. But we're proud of it. Um, and it's an important thing that we do. And we do it because we think it's right. And we hope that more and more countries will join us in that. Um, so there is a wider conversation about, about aid. Um, there is a wider conversation about um, a development and the link between development and humanitarianism. But for the time being, bringing countries into a room, not just to pledge money, but that is an important part of it, but also to look at the longer term, which is what London is doing. And that's one of the unusual things about the London conference. Um, doing that is a very, very effective way of making a dent um, in the kind of problem that we're talking about. It requires a huge mobilization. We're going to have a large number of world leaders in London. We'll have 70 countries represented. Um, this is a good way to galvanize the global community. I guess is is one perhaps negative consequence of galvanizing uh, money and resources around this specific crisis, and it's the biggest one in the world. Um, but you know, a, a starving Syrian is no more or less deserving of funds than a starving, you know, uh, Ethiopian, uh, and they're ex about to experience, or they are experiencing it right now because of El Nino, a, a huge food security crisis. And there is this concern that all this money is going towards Syria, but there's sort of precious little left over for other humanitarian crises around the world. I mean, the only thing I'd say on that, Mark, is it, it, in my view, it is not an either or. Um, if countries are meeting their aid commitments, um, if countries are looking carefully at the places in which they can make the most difference, um, then it is not an either or proposition. Um, we are very, very generous on humanitarian aid around the world. Um, uh, we look to other countries to join us in that. Um, we are focusing very much on Syria because, as you say, it is the worst single example in the world. But there are others, and you will see us being very active on those too. All right. Well, Ambassador Wilson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. Thanks so much for listening. If you're a regular listener, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes. I'd much appreciate it. If you are new to the podcast, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to download the app. Get in touch with me or check out our archives. See you soon. Bye.